In his precious name we pray. Amen. So friends, do um, grab Jude if you haven't got it. You've got one of these Burgundy Bibles. It's page 1231. And let me read uh, the entirety of Jude for us. We're just in verse 3 and 4 in a bit though. Verses 3 and 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who didn't believe. And the angels did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander what they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead, They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. 
Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. There we go. If you were around last week, um, which some of you were, we were um, thinking about the, the idea that your identity, who you are as a Christian, and what God gives to us as his people are the foundation upon which to build life. So do you remember, if you were here, some of the key words from verses 1 to 2 last week? Who was Jude? He was a servant, a slave even of Jesus. Uh, a brother of James, we said, who it seems was a brother of Jesus. So Jude was a, if you like, a stepbrother of Jesus, a younger brother. And we said at the heart of Jude, the author, is this extraordinary humility. He knows that his older brother Jesus is the boss. He, he knows that he is a servant of him. And in a world of pride, that was refreshing. And yet with this humility, we said, was this um, incredible assurance as well. There was a confidence, an encouragement for the Christians whom he's writing to. So, do you remember where that came from? Second half of verse 1. Their story is tied up with what God has done, past, is doing present, and will do For the future. That's where the assurance came. Looking back they are chosen and called. Looking now they are loved in God the Father. And looking ahead they are being kept for Jesus Christ for when he comes back. That's why they can be assured. That's why they can trust the Lord. And then we said, and he gives them what they need as well. Mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. We dug very deep into, we dug very deep into a number of these words. We thought about mercy from God, meaning peace with God, and so a love for one another, which is what they will need. Because the context into which Jude is writing is a difficult one. There is a challenge at hand. Do you remember what it was? The situation that Jude is writing to is that the people need to contend for the faith. Verse 3, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Why? Well, verse 4, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Do you see, it almost sounds like a contradiction in terms. Jews fear the reason that he writes is that this future they are being kept for, for Christ, verse 1, is something that they might miss out on. They are being kept for it, and yet he needs to warn them to contend for this faith that they might keep trusting. And if we say, as some do wrongly, while we are called, we are loved, we are kept, then it doesn't really matter what we do, then, then we can just be, ro- we're robots, God wills us 
to do these things and so it's okay, then I think we've missed the biblical balance on God being both sovereign and yet we are responsible. Or, or why else would Jude bother to write? If we're being kept, and we'll think about a bit more about that in the final um, couple of sermons, in a couple of weeks' time, then why would Jude write to warn them unless our actions are woven into God's sovereignty in such a way that we are responsible. In fact, if God was sovereign in such a way that what we did didn't matter, then large bits of the New Testament would not exist. Because the writers are often warning to warn the people to keep trusting, to be united, to love each other. The warnings are there to serve us that we might keep trusting. Jude writes because he knows that God being in charge does not mean that what we do does not matter. Now God is sovereign in such a way that our actions are woven into his plans and purposes. Is there mystery in that? Yes. Does the Bible teach both those things? Yes. Do we trust him? Yes. And so the context is he had planned to write, verse 3, about the salvation we shared, you see, to encourage them, it seems, to build them up in the gospel, which, which again is a striking thing, isn't it? Because sometimes we hear that the gospel is for folk who are not Christians. And when you get a bit more mature and you kind of move up through the ranks and you don't need the gospel so much anymore, but actually... As Jude was wanting to write to them about the salvation we share, it's not a case of sort of moving on from the milky stuff. No, the fact is, we all need the gospel. The gospel is the way into the Christian life, and it is the way on in the Christian life. It's the way that we are born, but it's the way that we grow. Again, the New Testament is full of gospel truths for Christians. How do we grow in the gospel? How do we grow up as believers? I take it it's as we apply the gospel afresh into our sinful but being transformed hearts. As we apply God's grace into who we are, the indwelling sin that we're still wrestling with and ashamed of. As we see our identity increasingly in him as the power of the cross grows us up in him. As we see the depths of our sin and the reality of what we're like and so the heights of his love in the cross, his grace for us. And so he had planned to write, verse 3, about the salvation we share, but then suddenly he veers off and changes course. Presumably some news has reached him, wherever he was, and he ends up writing to urge them to contend for the salvation that have been entrusted, the faith that's been entrusted to them. Rather than encouraging them with it, he wants them to fight for it. The thing I'm struck in Jude um, as well is this, this is not just an academic thing, this is not just a sort of lecture theatre moment where you've got Jude fighting one corner and these teachers, as we'll see, in another corner, or the church receiving this letter and thinking, what's going on here? Is this some sort of dry, dusty, doctrinal thing that Judah's getting up to you about what's happening? No, verse 3, dear friends, beloved, 
He's, he's writing really tough stuff. He's writing in such a way that they will have to action this and there may be conflict, urging them to step up to the plate, but they know that he loves them, dear friends, beloved. It's much easier, isn't it, to take hard challenges from people whom you know love you, care about you. So imagine the email comes through and it's a tricky one. You're not there to speak to them face to face. You can't read how they say it. You're thinking, how am I meant to read this email? Have they put caps lock on? Is there underlining? Is there red text? Are there any emojis just to soften things? Now, so you can imagine them reading this letter and their hearts begin to sink because Jude, who was going to write to encourage them, and now he's going to write to challenge them about the salvation they have in Christ. He wants them to stop following certain people. And you're reading through thinking, how does Jude feel about us? Why is he writing this? And it's their verse 3, dear friends, beloved. It's their verse 17, again, dear friends, beloved. It's their verse 20. He writes hard stuff, but he loves them. He wants the best for them. He cares for them. How has this truth got into the church? We'll have a look in a bit about what this this so-called truth is. But how has it got into the church? How has it started to reap damage among them? The, The sad news is there's an enemy within. I was reflecting on this this last week. And I remember back in the day, my wife and I used to watch something called 24. And I was thinking as I was preparing, am I, does that show my age? It maybe does. Do people still watch 24? Thank you. Thank you, Kat. You're kind. Um, I think there are probably eight series now. But basically, by the fourth series, you get the same kind of pattern. And you work out what's going to happen. There's this guy called Jack Bauer. Um, it's in a real-life action 24 hour period so if you watch it all then you could watch it in 16 hours because there are adverts um, and what happens is basically he will end up saving some politician he will drive very quickly around Los Angeles I've driven in Los Angeles it does not work like that um, it always takes him about 10 minutes to get somewhere he's not sat in traffic for an hour and a half um, and then there'll be someone close to him who will be threatened or kidnapped He wants to protect them. It's a wife, it's a daughter, it's a friend, it's a girlfriend, whatever it might be. And then you will almost always find a mole in the counter-terrorist units. Someone who has come into the organisation months before, working for someone on the outside. Someone who's an enemy. And you're looking out for it. Who is acting suspiciously? Who's on their mobile phone when they shouldn't be? Who's got this axe to grind? Who's got leverage against them? pardon the parallel but as Jude writes to this church there, is, there are moles within thing is we don't have to try and guess who the enemy is though that's pretty obvious the difficult thing is they must be removed the other interesting thing I think as you read Jude is that there is such a thing as truth truth matters Something like this that's going on here is not just Jude's personal preference. But the whole letter is founded upon there are truths that matter eternally. And we can't just say this is kind of Jude's, you know, this is the way I do things. Hey, yours is a church that values truth. 
This is a church that values community. Here's a church that values singing and music. Here's a church that's really big on social action. No, no, no. This is core. This is foundational. This is what unity must be built around. Without this truth in the gospel, you will cease to be a Christian church in some sense. Without this truth to stand on, your church will be dead. And so you can't just turn the blind eye, pretend it's not there, leave it alone. It's, pardon the illustration, but it's like cancer. And if you leave it, it will grow and it will cause death, as we'll see. And it's a cancer that needs to be chopped out. You see the moles in verse 4. You see, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our Sovereign and Lord. So who are they? The first thing to note, they are not a surprise. Do you see that in the start of verse 4? Their condemnation was written about long ago. I think that's the best translation. What does that mean? There, there are various thoughts and ideas as to what that means. It may be that these are talking of false prophets at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember Matthew 7 verse 15 onwards? Watch out for them, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognise them. That, that could be an option, Definitely. Maybe there's something like that in Jude's mind. Their condemnation written about long ago is reference to Jesus' teaching in the Gospel. I wonder if it's this though. I wonder if it's more likely to be, as we'll see next week and the week after, the fact that there has always been opposition to God's people. There's always been opposition to God's truth. That's just what happens. And so these people in Jude's time as we'll see next week and the week after, they come in a long line of other people. People maybe who look legit. People who seemed to be able to talk the talk. Who played the part and then it turned out they were far from God. There'll be some hard wrestling next week if you're around. But maybe that's what Jude is is saying. Maybe the fact that there's always been opposition to the people of God and to his truth means that we should expect it. Just as there was opposition to the old Israel in the Old Testament, so the new Israel, the, verse 1, called, loved and kept people, for them too there will be opposition. It's a sad truth, but it's a truth. So it ought not be a surprise. second thing to note about them, not just that their condemnation was written about long ago, but they have slipped in among you. They are among them. As you read the New Testament, often you see this kind of situation whereby there are travelling teachers who often go behind the apostles bringing um, their take on truth and hanging off the coattails of the, the folk with authority who come first. So maybe in Galatians or somewhere. People who head from town to town peddling their ideas and they are Um, itinerant, eloquent, attractive, novel teachers. People maybe who offer a refreshing change, a little twist on what's normally said. You know, they may have taught this, but let me tell you why they're only half right. Let me just give some nuance there and show you what really they should have said 
undoing the good work of the gospel teachers who have come before. Yet actually what they bring is not nourishing at all, it is poison. I should say as well, just as an aside slightly, we, <clears throat> it strikes me we're a people who love novelty. Our hearts easily get bored with the old truths. And so we need to take care as we hear teaching of any sort. So often in the New Testament, people seem to get sucked into some kind of false teaching, just a tweak on the Apostles' message, a tiny trajectory change that leads you right over there, miles away from where you ought to be. It worries me as I look around the Christian world, as I read the blogs, as I potter on Twitter or whatever it might be, because we do chase after the new idea. We do love the original thing. And it's always good to be stretched and it's always good to be always reforming. But as Jude will go on and say, we must come back to the scriptures. We must weigh and hear and test what we hear against the scriptures. That must be our final authority. And for a people who love novelty, for a people who might easily be duped, then we must have our Bibles open. So, number one, condemnation written about long ago. Number two, they are slipped in among you. Number three, next bit in verse four, they are ungodly people. Um, Maybe you noticed it as I read the entirety of Jude again for us, but it's a word he will use a number of times. Um, You get it in a bit as well, verse eight. You get it, I think, three times in verse 15. Um, How does our NIV do? Uh, to judge everyone and to convict all of them and their ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have, def- um, have spoken against him. And then you go again in verse 18 as well, just a couple of verses below. And it's as if he's saying, guys, look at their lives. Look at the lives of these teachers. They can quote scripture, they can sing songs so beautifully, they can put together an engaging, eloquent sermon and you should read their latest book. But look at their lives. Look at what they're really like. Look at the fruit of their ministry. You can see that their theology is bad because their lives are bad. You can't fake real life for long. And yet maybe we say, well... How do we know what truth is in a world of relativism where all truth is truth in inverted commas and in a world where we probably don't like like conflict that much maybe we say what is wrong with their theology what is at the heart of their teaching that Jude is urging them to contend against why does it matter so much just look at the last bit of verse 4 and I think we'll see two things Both of them are very relevant, both of them are important, and I think both of them are still completely contemporary. They are all around us. They are in churches all around us. The first thing is a misunderstanding of grace. It seems they understand something of the cross. It seems they've got the fact that God forgives his people. That beautiful truth of reconciliation with the God who made us. Jesus gets rid of sin. 
They seem to get some of that, but then they use that truth as a get-out-of-jail-free card. If I'm forgiven, I can do whatever I want, they say. I've got Jesus. You know, God's hands are tied. It doesn't matter if I do that now. He has to forgive me. I'm sorted. It's all right. I live this side of the cross, and so I can treat people like that, and I can watch that and spend my money on that and do those things... And maybe these are the bad fruits seen in their lives. This is why he describes them as ungodly. God's grace is never a license for us to do what we want. A real grasp of God's grace means we understand his hatred of sin. We understand why Jesus had to die. And so why would you want to revel in that? As his people, why would we want to become less like him and deliberately sin? That would be crazy. There's a helpful um, parallel in Titus on this. Titus uh, 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. You see that the grace of God has come and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. I found on my travels in, whatever it is, a couple of decades almost in ministry now, pastoral ministry, people can get muddled on this. But here's the thing, because we've understood grace, then we can live godly lives now. We know the gospel is true. We know we are forgiven and loved. We know that he looks at us and we don't have to prove ourselves. He calls us beloved, dear friends. And so grace then motivates us to change. Because grace, so now what do we say? Do you see why that's contemporary? Because there are so many Christians who don't get this. So many Christians who think, because I am forgiven and reconciled, then I can do what I want. And the danger can be, we look out there and think, God, those Christians out there who do that. But the reality might be, it's in our hearts as well. We can treat his grace like the get-out-of-jail-free cars. Which means we're not as tight in the way we talk or the way we live or the way we think. So that's the first thing. They pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. The second thing, do you see, is that they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. This is slightly more complicated and there are a couple of ways that you can take this. Commentators are essentially divided. Either, how do, so the question is, how do they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord? What do they do? Either it is actual wrong teaching about who Jesus is. This is these are falsehoods being communicated. Why do you think that? Well, it's a bit technical, but the sovereign word there, and we get it in capitals in our NIV 2011, the sovereign word is generally used of the sovereignty of God the Father. They're talking about his power, his majesty, his control. That's general description of the God the Father. 
And so maybe they're denying Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord because they're refusing to accept the sovereign rule of Jesus. They don't see the reality of his identity and his lordship. Slightly speculative, but maybe they don't understand him to be equal to God the Father. Some of the early Trinitarian heresies, so the kind of stuff that Jehovah's Witnesses and Christadelphians, we would still differ with them on that. Jesus being a kind of lesser being, perhaps that's it. Perhaps that's how they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So it could be a belief thing, a doctrine thing. That could be what's going on. Or it might be a life thing. That is, they will happily accept him as their saviour. Again, get out of jail free card. Grace, I'm fine. That is, they will take the benefits of the cross. They will thank him for that and they will sing about them with gusto, but they won't submit to him as sovereign and lord. That is, they won't live the life where he is the boss, where he gets to call the shots. They can tick a doctrinal box of sorts. Yes, I believe this about him, but then their life shows something quite different. So they deny him by a lifestyle that does not submit to him as Lord. And yet for the Christian, he is saviour and Lord. He rescues and he rules. Again, I've had friends in the past who were very happy to say, thank you, yes, I would like him as my saviour. But actually not so much as Lord. I don't particularly want him to call the shots. I don't particularly want to do things his way. I'd quite like the benefit and the fruit of the cross in forgiveness. But I'm still quite keen in living the way I have been living. Thank you very much. Now, whichever of those two it might be, as they deny him, we'll see next week, their future trajectory does not look good. This is what Jude wants them and us to avoid. It will end in judgment, he says. So what? All kinds of things, but it seems particularly to me that what you believe matters. And in our world, to stand on truth, in Oxford, to stand on truth as being something that is objectively true, will, will be scary. To contend in that way, at times will be the kind of thing we might shrink from. Now, yes, we can, I take it, agree to disagree on some secondary things, but these foundational gospel grace truths, no, we we can't budge on those. Because you get rid of them and you get rid of Christianity. And maybe you look at me and say, well, that's your job. That's great. That's why we have church leaders. Because they are the people who are to do these things, to protect us from these things, to teach us things, to say, have your Bibles open, please. And yet what's striking at the end of verse 3 is this. Who was the faith entrusted to? To all God's holy people. 
It's interesting, isn't it? This is not addressed foundationally at least to pastoral teams or church leaders or elders or bishops or to really keen Christians or to those who like that sort of thing. And clearly, elders, church leaders, pastors will have a key role in protecting what is taught, in shepherding in truth. But actually it's striking that this is a letter to all God's holy people to contend. To to you lot, as well as to me. Hence, keep your Bibles open. Not just on a Sunday, but through the week. Get to know the scriptures in such a way that you're able to contend and that you see increasingly how beautiful he is. And so this is our faith. This is something for all of us to engage in to get to grips with this is not something we can duck sadly just as I finish a couple of things that have really struck me um, in these verses particularly as I've prepared this last week um, lots and lots of what I've already said has struck me as well but just a couple of things um, that have kind of stuck with me The first thing is to say, often I think the most damage that can be done to a church comes from the outside. So it's legislation or government or other people from outside and kind of stopping us living the kind of faith we want to live. And yet I've been corrected this week in that thinking, do you know, so much of the New Testament is written because there are there are false teachers within the people of God who are sowing seeds of doubt and destruction and damage. I guess the answer to that again is have Bibles open and we test what people are saying. But there's a danger that we can just be looking outside whereas actually often it's the moles within. I'm not saying there are moles in this room at all. But I'm saying we need to have our eyes open and to be wise. Um, the second thing that struck me is the sort of the tying up of the end of verse 4. And that is just the way that what we believe impacts how we live. And, and we kind of know that, of course we do. But wrong theology, wrong understanding of God and his truths will be reaped in wrong actions and lifestyle. That works the other way around as well, actually. Sometimes we want to justify what we're doing and say we will change what we believe about God. Um, That we can do the thing we wanted to do. But just the way we are joined up people and what we believe impacts how we live. Again, the answer to that, have your Bibles open. That what you believe about God is what he has told you about himself rather than what we would like to believe about him. Uh, That's me done. I'm going to pray, and then I'll hand over to Matthew, um, who will lead us in a time of response, some of these truths and ideas, um, working their way through into our praise and adoration of our King. 
Um, but let me do this in prayer first. Lord, we thank you that mercy, peace and love are all uh, are ours in abundance. Thank you that you have called us and loved us and will keep us. Lord, we want to know you better. And so we pray that your truths would increasingly be at work within us. Shape us more into the likeness of your Son. We pray these things in, in his glorious, beautiful name. Amen.